Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. It's mad night at the circus, isn't it? Boris, you know, unhinged now. Apparently the fact that officials were preparing for a no-deal Brexit meant they were too busy to prepare for a pandemic. Whatever the actual final outcome of the war, the Ukrainians will cry betrayal. I do think now there's going to be a hell of a ding-dong in the next few weeks. We've got two by-elections coming up. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The summer silly season isn't yet upon us, but already British politics has descended into circus mode. The Commons Privileges Committee has censored Boris Johnson to such an extent that the former Prime Minister resigned before the committee's report had even been published. That was amidst a bizarre row between Johnson and his former protégé Rishi Sunak, over Bojo's resignation honours list, with top Tories rowing over who gets an income-for-life seat in the Lords, while much of the country, hammered by an ongoing cost-of-living crisis, looks on aghast. Talking of which, inflation in the US, Alison, just fell to 4%, less than half the 8.7% annual rate at which headline prices are rising here in Britain. With wages spiralling, the Bank of England will surely have to raise interest rates even more. Earlier this month, the consensus view was that UK rates had peaked at their current level of 4.5%, but high wage growth and spiralling government borrowing costs mean rates are now expected to hit 6% plus. We'll know more when the Bank of England next rules on interest rates next Thursday. There's lots to talk about, but from political chaos to economic woe, but let's start with this co-pilot. As parents of student-aged kids ourselves... What ghastly news from Nottingham, where two young people were fatally stabbed, their whole lives ahead of them. Yeah, it's terrible, Liam, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to find the words. As you say, we've both got kids at university. We both have those sort of same slight alarming thing when you get a text at 3am saying, mum, I'm trying to get an Uber. In fact, for a time, I was on their Uber. I think I was the payee of the Uber account. So I would get these texts in the middle of the night saying, Mr. Mohammed is waiting outside. And I knew that was the kids. So we can imagine that the families of Barnaby Weber and Grace Kumar, both age 19, both immensely gifted athletes, Barney was a cricketer. Grace played hockey at national level. Two absolutely shining young people, their whole lives ahead of them. A really, really terrible story. But let's talk a little bit about Boris versus Rishi and Mm. Boris and the Privileges Committee. You wrote a really strong piece in the paper on Wednesday, and we put the link to that in the show notes of this episode, because... You haven't had much good to say about Boris Johnson in recent months. You've been despairing, 
at him and his behaviour, how, in your view, and indeed in mine, he squandered his 80-seat majority. But I know this Privilege Committee verdict has really got on your goat, hasn't it? Well, as you said in your intro, Liam, I mean, it is really mad night at the circus, isn't it? Boris, unhinged now, going for Rishi. He's got nothing to lose, resigned his seat, probably was going to lose his seat in Uxbridge anyway. And Boris is absolutely furious. And as you said, the Privileges Committee is expected to give its verdict today, Thursday. Boris, they're going to say, was guilty of deliberately misleading the House of Commons over Partygate. And the word is that the seven-strong panel, we have to say that four of them are Conservatives, have concluded that Boris was wrong to claim officials had advised him that all COVID rules and guidance were complied with at all times in number 10. You'll remember him saying that with great confidence in the Commons. And some senior staff in Downing Street, it turns out, now saying they did warn him against making such a claim as it was unrealistic. I actually went back, Liam, and I read <laughs> I read the official guidance for social distancing at work May 2020. What a farcical document that is. I mean, you just don't know whether to laugh or cry reading the mitigating actions, further increasing the frequency of hand washing and surface cleansing. So much of it utterly pointless. And I suppose what I've come to the conclusion, I mean, I mean, it's a very detailed topic, which we should unpack. But Boris Johnson is being made to carry the can for a period of epic absurdity. I don't think what they did, I thought it was very bad that they were holding gatherings in Downing Street. But we know that a bunch of healthy young people in Downing Street who had all had COVID, including the Prime Minister, that was doing nobody any harm at all. So the fundamental error was to ever pretend to the public that it was an issue. So he is being made to carry the can. I think there are civil servants, huge numbers of people around him who should also be in the frame. But it's all about get Boris, bring down Boris. I personally think, Liam, that if you've lost your job as a prime minister, that's probably punishment enough. But it's not enough for them. They want to drive a stake through his heart, put him in the lead coffin, drag him out to sea and drop the coffin overboard. That's what they want to do. They're so scared of him. And I just think it's massively disproportionate. And let's just mention our sort of media elite, very happy to kind of be quite tight-lipped about Nicola Sturgeon being arrested arrested the former leader of the SNP, who stood down apparently on with high ideological motives and so on. But now, of course, no charges made, but nevertheless arrested. So they like her. She's their kind of girl, isn't she? She flatters their ideological prejudices. But Boris, they hate Boris. So all of this is the media wants to get Boris and now Boris wants to get Rishi. Game on. I do think there is an aspect of the absurd about it. We have to remember that the rules were insane. We also have to remember that many ordinary people were abiding by the rules. Care homes were imposing rules in a very, very vociferous manner, preventing people from seeing their loved ones. There was a lot of officiousness at the local level. People's lives were made a misery. But at the time, the fact that Boris Johnson had a birthday cake and some of his close staff who were in the Downing Street bunker during that period, to all intents and purposes, running the country. The fact that 
he had a birthday cake and they sang to him was reported as a light piece in the Times the yes. next day, in the Times diary. Yes. It wasn't an issue. Twitter at the time was absolutely full of nurses and doctors and all kinds of other public sector workers. Yeah, TikTok dancing. Who weren't at home, who were, you know, doing their best and doing a great job, raising morale by putting little dance videos. We were banging our pots and pans in admiration for them. It's very much in retrospect. And it's a very it's very cruel but convenient for the enemies of the former mm. Prime Minister to elide those happenings in a workplace which are happening in workplaces all over the country with the deep understandable suffering of ordinary people who lost loved ones during the COVID era and I must say this COVID inquiry that's now kicked off it just fills me with just dread and woe why (laughs) if there was any justice what we've been saying about collateral damage for, for years and were pilloried for, mm. you know, largely been proved right by scientific studies since then, not least that recent study from John Hopkins and Lund University, which we highlighted on the podcast earlier this month. I have no confidence that the public inquiry is going to focus on things like that. Oh, we got this wrong. Let's get it right next time. It's going to focus as it is already. There's no other way to express this a lot of very mawkish emphasis on the deaths that happened. And of course, that's a terrible thing. But most people had died. Some of them were in the prime of their lives and COVID was a serious virus. But most people that died, on average, they were older than our natural life expectation. That's not to diminish those deaths. But to begin this public inquiry with a film of endless suffering. We know people suffered. That's what we're trying to get right. And to begin it with the absurdity of insisting that people take lateral flow tests in 2023. How can these people be objective about lockdown and about this pandemic when in 2023 they're asking us to take lateral flow tests? I mean, how can they be objective about the rules in 2020 and 2021? It's just absurd. And now we're being told broadcasters have been briefed, oh, at least three years, possibly more. Absolute madness. Sweden did their report in months. Italy did their report in months. This shouldn't take years and years. It's a lawyer's bonanza paid for by all of us. It's ridiculous. We need short, sharp investigations, a lot of honesty, a focus on the facts, not on the emotion. That's the whole point of an inquiry. And coming to the conclusion about what we should do next time, because it's almost entirely obvious that what we should do next time with a virus like that is discretionary, age-related shielding, a lot more emphasis on persuasion and voluntary measures rather than fear and ridiculous rules that can then be used conveniently for political reasons after the event. I did think of you in Planet Normal when the opening statement of the COVID inquiry said, guess what was to blame for COVID, Liam? Brexit. <laughs> Not the Chinese Communist Party. It's obviously- Apparently the fact that officials were preparing for a no-deal Brexit <laughs> meant they were too busy to prepare <laughs> for a pandemic. That's not true. We had an extremely well thought through pandemic plan as Alan Johnson, who was health secretary at the time when it was put together, will freely admit. The problem is that we completely ignored the pandemic plan. We threw it out. We put the word not in every sentence and we went for a medieval style lockdown when it clearly wasn't the best thing to do because the prime minister 
of the time and the political media class were spooked into doing it. I think what you said is absolutely right. So that there were the alarm bells were ringing, weren't they, when they were sort of suggesting that people might take the oh so reliable lateral flow test, which had, which were partly what had helped fuel the COVID paranoia, which had brought about the endless lockdown in the first place. You know, and our contention here on Planet Normal is that COVID nineteen has now taken its rightful place among a number of relatively harmless coronaviruses and for the COVID inquiry, as you say, Liam, to give that undue prominence. And I did. I know you're not supposed to laugh because it's supposed to be serious, but there was this um the terrible four-part tapestry panels commemorating people's emotions during the pandemic. Do you think we can have a panel for the emotions we had on Planet Normal? It'd be like the Bayer tapestry, wouldn't it, with you and me with arrows, bows and arrows shooting at them. But yeah, there's a lot to talk about. And I know listeners will feel extremely strongly about it. But I think it's the stance, isn't it? What we want is we want them to investigate why the greatest suppression of individual freedom in modern history looks like it's set to investigate the theory of too little, too late, rather than our theory, which is too much, too soon. And I just want to say this, because this guy, Hugo Keith, we'll probably get to know him a lot better over the coming months and years. Hugo Keith KC, he's the counsel for the inquiry, Liam. And in his opening remarks, he said that national lockdowns were given very little thought ahead of the pandemic. There was a failure to consider the massive, potentially massive impact that restrictions on civil liberties would have, the effect it would have on education and so on. He says, extraordinary though it may seem, there was very little debate pre-pandemic of whether a lockdown might prove to be necessary in the event of a runaway virus, let alone how a lockdown could be avoided. Now, that is simply not true. As you've just quoted Alan Johnson, I was talking last week to a senior civil servant who'd worked in number 10. There was a very clear UK pandemic plan Mm. in which lockdown was specifically rejected because they knew it would be disastrous. So it wasn't even on the menu. It's basically just not true. The fact it hadn't been debated wasn't because people didn't want to debate it. It was because the people, the experts, as Anders Tegnell told me when I went to visit him in Sweden not long ago, he said they knew, he said lockdown had never been on in the pandemic plan of any Western country. We did lockdown, I think, because China did lockdown and politicians saw the chance of a power grab and the media piled in insisting on firmer, harder, faster mm. style policies. It's I want the public inquiry to ask questions such as why was the original pandemic plan thrown out? Why did we so quickly go to lockdown? Why was there absolutely no attempt to do proper cost-benefit analyses of lockdown, including the massive psychological, economic practical and health implications of turning the NHS into a COVID-only service. And some people listening to this may criticise us for being a little bit flip and trying to just leaven this ghastly subject with a little bit of humour. We should apologise to no one, Alison, because we risked a lot personally, professionally 
and psychologically throughout this lockdown, we were constantly pointing to the collateral damage and being hammered for it by a whole range of people within and beyond journalism. And it was only a lot of Planet Normal listeners emailing us and our own conversations, one with another, Alison, that kept me sane during that period. Yeah as gradually more and more extremely distinguished scientists and extremely distinguished figures, experts in their field, they too put their head above the parapet. Those lockdown heroes that we have cited over the months and years, the likes of Shinetra Gupta, Oxford's epidemiologist, the likes of Carl Hennigan, also a superb Oxford professor, who we now know was censored routinely by the social media giants in cahoots with taxpayer-funded civil servants and government ministers, the likes of oncologists like Carol Sikora and others. And so we mustn't be scared to put forward how we think this lockdown inquiry should go. But so far from what we've seen, the endless rows over process and WhatsApp messages the briefing, it, oh, it's going to take, we can rush it through in three to five years. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's that's completely mad. We should be shouting from the rooftops that that is just not good enough. And the sort of wailing wall opening, no one's undermining or disregarding the suffering of individual families who lost loved ones, whether it was of COVID, with COVID, at the same time that COVID was in the headlines. Of course, you never denigrate grief and suffering and you honour the passing of human life. But that does not make for the kind of public inquiry that's going to save lives in the future. It just becomes overly emotional, and it becomes unscientific, and it shies away from the hard decisions we have to make and the conversations we've got to have about the mistakes that we made in order to not make those same mistakes in the future, because this is the danger. Another pandemic comes and we move again to lockdown. And I'm not sure what would happen then with the population. I think it'd be very, very difficult to control the population. And then you get not just a health crisis, you get a crisis of governance. I think the country's changed, Liam. Let's face it, it has become feelings over facts. And I was reminded actually that I know a wonderful older, now retired GP. And Fiona told me that in the 68-69 flu pandemic, I think about 80 or 90,000 people died here in that period, which probably is not far from, let's face it, from the death toll of people who actually died of COVID. As we know, they, they brought in the deaths within 28 days of a positive COVID test, which dragged a lot more people into the net. And we should also remember that a lot of people were very upset that their relatives who died of cancer or heart disease were having COVID slapped down on their death certificate. But Dr. Fiona said to me that during that 68-69 great flu epidemic, she and her colleagues, they moved all the flu patients under canvas in the grounds of a school in Cambridge, the Lees School. They rolled up their sleeves and they got on with it and nobody really made a fuss. I mean, in fact, some listeners, some older listeners will remember it, but it just barely registered, Liam, did it as a blip. We turned into a different kind of country 
And I think we've got to put our hands up and say that the 24-7 media, hysterical people on 24-7 news, screaming at the government to close the schools, why aren't the borders The, the political shut? lobby, the lobby correspondents, oh. of whom I was once a proud yeah. member of the political press pack, they were ridiculous. They were ridiculous. And they you had ridiculous. some amazing health correspondents, including at the Telegraph, who knew so much more, and they weren't given the chance to question Jonathan Van Tam and yes. Matthew Hancock and the rest of them on primetime television. They should have been. They, we should have had journalistic expertise pushing back against this political nonsense, this COVID theatre, as David Frost so memorably coined it. If you remember, Keir Starmer disgracefully at the dispatch box shouting about the Johnson variant. He's basically accusing the Prime Minister, the Johnson variant, of killing people. Now, what is the government supposed to do? You know, we are firm opponents of lockdown, but what is the government going to do when you've got other people in Parliament accusing you of being responsible for people losing their lives? And how ridiculous that just as we had... Nicola Sturgeon, that you know, world states person that she is, constantly pushing for yes. firmer lockdown. Oh, we're going to have masks twenty four seven. Kids are going mm. to wear masks when they're asleep, and all this madness. <laughs> Are similar politicians at Westminster not having the guts to say, Nicola, that's completely mad? Mm. Because then the media would say, Granny killer, Granny killer, yeah. and of course, because. It's at taxpayers' expense. Scotland's got to have its very own public inquiry, hasn't it? Which, of course, will be gainsaying the public inquiry at Westminster all the time. Again, complete duplication, more political theatre, totally unscientific. It's all about partisanship. It's all about the worst of our politics rather than the best of our politics. You know, we've long had this fiction that the NHS is the best in the world and our civil service is the best in the world and the Brits are really good at doing these incredible public inquiries with all these erudite people who learn Greek and Latin at university and aren't they fantastic? We're ridiculous at public inquiries, okay? It's woolly, it's indulgent, it's vapid, it's dramatic, it's overly theatrical. Three years plus... I can't believe that we're accepting that. Coming back to this Boris thing, Liam, something that did occur to me was that he's being accused of misleading Parliament, loses his seat, loses his job as Prime Minister. They want him to even... There's even a suggestion he might be banned from ever attending Parliament again. And yet, in living memory, we have certain people telling the House of Commons that there were weapons of mass destruction, which justified the entire country going to war against Iraq. Now, some of us might think that that, (laughs) the second lie, was a bit more significant to the fate of our nation than whether Boris had a bit of Victoria sandwich. But I do think there's going to be a hell of a ding-dong in the next few weeks. We've got the two by-elections coming up. We've got Boris's own Uxbridge. We've got Selby and Anstey. Nadine Dorries is keeping her powder dry. She was supposed to be resigning. I think it's mid-Bedfordshire is her constituency. That's one of the safest seats in the country. But not anymore, Liam, because I keep telling you there are no more safe Tory seats in this country after the mess this government has made. But Nadine Dorries is going to be there in the Commons as Boris's sniper. So I think it is all going to be interesting. But the concern I wanted to put to you, if you think about it, 
this whole accusation of it being a banana republic. We are three and a half years from people having cast their votes to give Boris that stonking 80-seat majority, about a mandate to get Brexit done. Since then, he's gone. We've had the truss interregnum, Lady Jane Grey of nine days. Then we've got Rishi Sunak, who nobody voted for apart from the MPs. So it seems to me that, that democracy itself now is running a bit thin. And I do think that the slide into tyranny, I know Boris is a divisive figure. I know some people think he's an absolute buffoon and disgraceful and so on. But treating someone who was the prime minister and trying to ban him from having ever again a political career, such as their paranoia about him, that should really be a cause for concern. In March, the Daily Telegraph broke a story. The former Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages. The Daily Telegraph says it's obtained thousands of WhatsApp messages. On the 100,000 leaked WhatsApp messages revealed. Some poor so-and-sos had to go through those. And now, those same poor so-and-sos are going deeper. The stunning incompetence of the British state was absolutely extraordinary. The COVID inquiry may be underway. They definitely knew what they were doing when they took them out of the hospitals into the care homes. But you shouldn't have to wait years for answers. You've got lockdown. There is no way that that isn't going to have a massive impact. If I had sit on that material to protect politicians' dark secrets, I don't think that would have been an honourable thing to do. The Lockdown Files podcast from The Telegraph. Follow now, wherever you're listening to this, to make sure you don't miss an episode. It's 16 months since Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. And as we record, Ukrainian forces are reporting extremely fierce fighting in Zaporizhia and Donetsk. Two of the regions, along with Luhansk and Kherson, which together link Russia to Crimea, the site, of course, of Russia's main naval base. With this conflict entering a crucial phase, who better to welcome to Planet Normal than the doyen Russia specialist Owen Matthews? I first met Owen in the mid-90s when we were both journalists based in Moscow. Owen, though UK-born and bred but with a mother born in eastern Ukraine, speaks Russian like a native. A prolific author, his books have been translated into 28 languages. And a former Moscow and Istanbul correspondent for Newsweek, Owen now writes regularly for The Spectator. His latest book, Overreach, the inside story of Putin's war against Ukraine, has just come out in paperback. I started by asking Owen if, with his massive knowledge and experience of Russia and the broader region, if he was surprised when Putin did invade Ukraine 16 months ago. I was incredibly surprised and shocked, not because I didn't think it couldn't happen, and I didn't ever say it wouldn't happen, but what I did say quite forcefully and publicly is that it made no sense for Putin to actually invade, because people forget how well he was doing with his diplomacy. And I was always of the mind, along with you know large sections of the Russian elite and people even quite close to Putin, I was convinced that it was the heavy metal diplomacy that he was engaged in that was the real policy. And the threats to actually invade Ukraine was, uh, was the bluff. But of course, it, uh, I was proved wrong. It was the other way around. But the point was that it was really stupid. He was doing so well. And actually, even if he had 
have actually invaded and stayed at the borders of the rebel republics, he would have got that. Because, you know, on the eve of the war, we tend to forget that the uh, before the horrors of Bucha emerged, uh, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky was actually quite prepared to accept something less than full NATO membership. He was prepared to talk about the status of Crimea and the rebel republics of Donbass. And there was definitely room for compromise. And furthermore, on the international front, Emmanuel Macron was talking to Putin right up until you know, a few hours before the invasion and offering him you know, a major international conference about the security architecture of Europe and how to address Russia's paranoia or more diplomatically concerns over NATO expansion and so on. I mean, Putin had literally had everything that he wanted out of that process and nonetheless, crazily, went for war. Indeed, you argue in Overreach that the idea of invading Ukraine went from the marginal fringes of Russian politics to becoming official Kremlin policy, with Putin's grudge against Ukraine going all the way back to 1991, when, of course, the Ukrainian people, as in the Baltic states, voted overwhelmingly for independence as the USSR collapsed. How did that switch happen from the marginal fringes of Russian politics to official Kremlin policy? And how did it happen so quickly? Well, we're talking about two slightly different things. One of them is that um, the the idea of actually invading Ukraine was actually never became mainstream. It was like such a, a left field unexpected thing to actually try and take Kiev. I mean, that kind of was never a mainstream thing. What became mainstream policy was this cult of ultra-nationalism and the sort of new imperialism that Putin actually cited as, you know, one of his major ideological you know, underpinnings of the whole of the whole Ukraine project. The idea of, you know, reviving the Russian empire was an idea that was held by ultra-nationalist opponents opponents of Putin, you know, in the in the 2000s. And it was only after Putin's return to presidency in 2012. In 2012, Putin returns to power for the first time in his reign. He has, you know, severe local opposition from hundreds of thousands of Muscovites coming out on the streets. And he starts getting getting concerned that this is, you know, another colored revolution, another sort of popular uprising uh, that he, Putin, believes is orchestrated out of Washington that's coming to get him. And from that moment onwards, Putin's entire uh, policy is focused on pushing back against what he sees as that American influence in Russia itself and the near abroad. And he starts becoming very aggressive about Ukraine and the whole Maidan revolution of 2014, where that sort of people power overthrew a pro-Moscow president in, in Kiev, Viktor Yanukovych, was overthrown by people power protests. And, you know, uh, it was that moment that was the tipping point that Putin decides, you know, to invade and annex uh, Crimea. But all of that is actually, you know, happens on the fly. It was not a big political idea in the run up to the invasion of Crimea to invade Crimea. It just sort of, they just decided to pull that out of their hat in a matter of days. Um, back in the in the spring of 2014, and then you have the intervening eight years where you see Putin retreating into increasing paranoia, and that paranoia reaches its apogee with the beginning of COVID, because uh, for reasons that are not yet quite clear, Putin is very, very, very paranoid about 
COVID and goes into that bubble. But you know, he emerges with this set of ideas about Ukraine, about Russia, about the future of Russia, that had margin for earlier been completely, you know, marginal and the province of, you know, mystical ultra orthodox crazies. And they became Kremlin policy. That's very, very interesting. Obviously, here in the West, we hear about the war reported largely from the Ukrainian side, but you also present arguments from a Russian perspective, not to condone the invasion for one second, but to try and understand the Kremlin's motives. Russians, as you point out, are well used to hardship, Owen. They circle the wagons when they feel under siege. And that's why you argue, I think, that things would have to get far, far worse before there's any anti-Putin uprising among the border population. At least that's what you wrote in the book. Do you still feel that way? Basically, I do. Because if you're talking about a revolutionary situation in Russia, I, I think people are fundamentally you know, rational, or certainly when it comes to their own you know, little worlds and you know, their own sort of personal lives. And the only times where you have had revolutionary situations, I mean, I was personally witness to one of them uh, back in August 2000, back in August 1991. By coincidence, I showed up in Leningrad the day before the hardline coup against Mikhail Gorbachev. Those last days and months of the Soviet Union were absolutely miserable. There were no food in the shops. It was really clear that the state was collapsing. Nobody believed in communism anymore. There was you know, clearly no upside to remaining, to sticking with that rotten old sort of communist situation. And none of that describes the Russia of today yet. I've been to Russia three times since uh, the beginning of the invasion, uh, most recently in September, October. But my observation is that, you know, things are very far from desperate, and that in Russia. And in fact, not only are they far from desperate, is that the war is, you know, actually rather invisible. The hipsters are still in their hipster cafes, the theatres and the nightclubs are completely full. Everyone is doing very their utmost to uh, ignore the war, and people don't really discuss it. And that's why I think the game has changed a little bit when these drone attacks began on May 3rd with that strike on the Kremlin roof. And now more drones are falling in Moscow. But as yet, people are certainly starting to notice the war, but they're not beginning to panic. And all of that is important because uh, in order for people to actually rise against Putin, for them to actually stand up and say, like, you know, this is nonsense, you know, we can't live like this anymore. It's for, you know, their people's livelihoods and so on to be actually threatened. And, you know, their lives that they have built completely fall apart. And the downside at the moment from, you know, some kind of upheaval, change of power, collapse of the regime is actually going to be a disaster for most people. We're still a very long way away from that. We can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know that situation you know, does not does not pertain. Yeah, the economy is growing. The ruble was pretty much the only major currency in the world that went up against the dollar last year. You write Owen about characteristically Russian form of aggrieved patriotism. You say it's formed of hurt and of pride in equal measure. It might be too early to ask this question, but I know you think about it deeply. And that's reflected in, in the book as well. What do you think future historians will say about this war? Obviously, it's partly because of Russia's imperialist instincts, Putin's KGB background, the factors that we've discussed so far. Was it also partly about Western policy, expanding NATO to so many countries so quickly from the Russian perspective? 
That's obviously the massive debate. And I live in, in Italy, where actually one of the most pro-Putin nations in Europe, you'll find lots of people say like, oh, you know, NATO made Putin do it. It's all America's fault. It's really important to pin down what we're actually talking about, about like what could NATO have done differently in order to avoid the war. And indeed, you know, Putin has recently revived this whole idea of the NATO expansion and the threat of NATO. And furthermore, you have, what I think, one of the most important quotes about the war is a guy called Viktor Zolotov, who's the head of the Russian National Guard, a former Putin, head of Putin's bodyguards, a very powerful uh, member of Putin's inner circle. And uh, a couple of years ago, Zolotov uh, said, uh, Ukraine is not important. Ukraine just happens to be where Russia's border with America lies. So in that sense, I think it's the paranoia and the idea that this is a defensive war against American encroachment on the space of Russia and on Russia itself is much more important than the imperialist fig leaf and the sort of ideological dressing. The war to the Russian elite, and particularly to the, the, the Putin and his inner circle, is a existential war of defense against what they see as encroaching threat, existential threat to Putin's own regime from America. That's the absolute basis. All of this other stuff about reviving the Russian empire, well, yes, but actually remember that the Russians invaded uh, Georgia in 2008. There are two republics of Georgia that they could very easily have annexed, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. They're not part of Russia. I mean, if 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 we think that you know, he's he's all about restoring the Russian Empire, then why isn't why aren't isn't South Ossetia and Abkhazia part of the Russian Empire? Because they they're not Russian republics. That's why they haven't been annexed. People tend to confuse uh, the hostile rhetoric about Ukraine with Putin's sort of parallel narrative of like saving Russians who found themselves in Ukraine. That's importantly different, that he considers that those Russian speakers of who find themselves in Ukraine are actually Russian people. And the war, one of the major slogans of the war is, we don't abandon our own. So, you know, to, in, in Putin's paranoid mind, he's launched this war not only to defend Russia against American encroachment, but also to save, you know, quote unquote, Russian people from that uh, in a Western influence. But to answer your question, like, was NATO to blame? Well, if you listen to Michael McFaul, who was uh, Barack Obama's uh, chief advisor on Russia and then uh, ambassador to Moscow under Obama, uh, he sat in or listened in to every single call between Obama and Putin during that whole eight years of Obama's presidency, every single one. And according to McFaul, the issue of NATO expansion, basically between 2008 and 2016, was not high on the Russian agenda at all. They didn't talk about it. But the actual result was that of you know, multiple summits was that no membership action plan was ever offered to uh, Georgia or Ukraine for the very good reason that the that would be enormously destabilizing and would expose NATO to, in, to enormous risk. And also, people tend to forget, it was also a legal impossibility, because 
according to the rules of NATO itself, no country with disputed borders can join NATO. And both Ukraine and Georgia, even before the Crimea invasion, and uh, before the 2008 inv- in, in Russian invasion of Georgia, they both had disputed borders. Th- this whole idea that NATO expansion somehow was the direct and proximate cause of the invasion is a chimera. It was just constructing something out of concern that you know the Russia had been expressing for years, but over something that was not really ever likely to happen, and which Russia's invasion actually made much more likely to happen. You argue ultimately in the book, Owen, that the outcome to this ghastly conflict, it won't be a clear victory for one side or the other. It will be a negotiation. Briefly, what might that negotiation look like? And do you think Western opinion is ready for a negotiated outcome? Well, one of the most depressing points that I make in the book, and unfortunately, I still believe this, is that whatever the actual final outcome of the war, the Ukrainians will cry betrayal. I think that's because I think it's extremely militarily and practically unlikely that the Ukrainians are ever going to recover every single inch of their territory. They're left with, you know, something which approaches a a compromise. And uh, that's where we get into sort of fatal gridlock territory, because uh, I don't think there's any circumstances under which Zelensky can or any future Ukrainian leader can sign a deal that involves land for peace. I think that's politically toxic. That's That will make Ukraine totally ungovernable. No Ukrainian leader will do that. And furthermore, you know, from the Russian side, the idea of, you know, withdrawing from Crimea is also, you know, politically toxic beyond belief. So in that sense... I don't actually see really negotiation as a realistic possibility. I think that the more likely outcome is some sort of formally frozen conflict. In other words, more like Cyprus or like Korea, where you just have a line of control and the two sides somehow find a sort of modus modus vivendi. But there's no formal peace deal because it would involve fatal concessions which neither side's leadership would survive. You and I met in the... Mid-90s, Owen, in the madness of post-Soviet Russia, you've written a fabulous book, Moscow Babylon, about those crazy times. But your connection with Russia goes back so much further. Your mother was born, if I may say so, in the former Soviet Union. You have a Russian wife now, Russian children. As a Brit with these deep, deep Russian roots, Owen, it must be tough. It's tough because you just realise... A, how many of your friends are complete idiots? How many people are just willing, sort of willfully blind to it? You know, friends, relatives who you had considered to be, you know, more or less smart, you know, well-traveled, well-educated, sort of should know better, but they don't. It's that sort of stress test of a country, which the and when the country that you love fails that stress test spectacularly and just sort of finds itself careering into this uh, fantastic magical thinking and you know complete denial of reality that's indeed quite a bitter thing to swallow and that, that's that, that's the hardest um thing to sort of work through you know, when we're talking about a post-war situation, what's going to happen to all these sort of angry patriots? You know, they're not going to suddenly, you know, change their minds. Like, oh, sorry, we were wrong. You know, Putin actually was it was a fascist. You know, they're they're going to just you know switch like frogs leaping across a lily pond to like the next conspiracy theory and the next conspiracy theory. Like, oh, NATO made us do it. You know, they want our resources. You know, there's always an excuse. My mother is a is a teacher of Russian grammar, and she 
jokes often that the prevalence of third party verb forms in other words you know something has has happened like you know you know something has occurred you know there's lots of ways when you speak russian it's not like i did something it's like uh, something occurred to me and she says it Grammar reflects the psychology <laughs> of like a totally irresponsible oh, society. God. You know, it's very rare to say like you know, take <laughs> responsibility for your actions. You just talk about things that the world did to you. And I realized that actually she has a point about that. Is that this uh, this whole idea of like grievance and you know it's just all about people failing to step up to the, to to the plate and take responsibility for their own actions and what their own actions actually allow their rulers to do in their name well and we've had not nearly enough time to talk about many many things we could talk about but it's been great to have you on planet normal overreach the inside story of putin's war against ukraine out now in paperback published by mudlark thanks a lot for appearing on planet normal I really loved listening to Owen, Liam. It's one of the joys of Planet Normal, isn't it? I mean, we often have people who are in the news, but to actually have someone of Owen's erudition and, you know, proper native knowledge of the Russian situation, I absolutely, really, really learned so much about it. I particularly like the grammatical point. That's great. (laughs) I knew that would appeal to you. (laughs) And it was great, I think, to hear him as well at a time when there were so many conspiracy theories pinging back and forth about Ukraine, aren't there? Given that so much has been going on, Alison, given that the media has been fixated on the Westminster Circus, on Phil and Holly and other events upon which the world's axis turns, there's just a couple of things I want to say about the war in Ukraine, which haven't really been discussed on Planet Normal recently. The first thing is the destruction of part of the damage of the dam, the Novokakaya Dam, close to the Black Sea in in the Kherson region of of southern Ukraine. Ukraine's military, of course, have accused Russia of blowing up the dam, as has NATO. Russian Mm. blames Ukraine. There have been thousands of evacuations. The reservoir is huge. Locals call it the, the, the Kakovka Sea because it is so huge. The thing I want to say about that is that an awful lot of farmland has been flooded. Yes. And an awful lot of crops have been lost. And the impact of that flooding will be felt and is already being felt on futures markets, global food markets. And so that will aggravate food price inflation over the coming months. That single event, the flooding of many, many acres of Ukrainian farmland, given Ukraine's role in global wheat markets, global markets for sunflower seeds and many other staple crops. The other thing I wanted to mention briefly, and I think we'll be hearing lots more about this, and Owen and I touched on it, is the role of China. Mm. Zelensky has extended an invitation to President Xi Jinping to visit Ukraine. That hasn't happened yet, but senior Chinese diplomats have visited Ukraine, have been touring Europe. Ukraine has emerged as a major destination for Chinese investment in recent months. Chinese workers have been operating in ports in southern Ukraine. Ukraine is very much part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, linking China to Europe and the rest of the world. And it strikes me that China is vying to play a key role in trying to bring about a resolution to the war in Ukraine. I do think there's fatigue here in the Western world. 
It's difficult to talk about it, but I think it's there. A lot of people in the US Congress are getting sick of backing Ukraine. I think that's going to be a major subject ahead of the US elections in November 2024 as we approach them. And I actually think that China, I was skeptical before, I think they will play a role in the resolution of Ukraine. I think they will emerge as some kind of peace brokers talking on Russia's behalf if you like. Macron has been talking to the Chinese a lot about resolving the war in Ukraine. And that's a key relationship because France and Germany, they were the powers, along with Russia and Ukraine, who negotiated the so-called Minsk Protocols, which were the original resolution plan in 2015-2016, deals that were all but signed but never quite implemented because Ukraine got cold feet at the last minute. And it may be convenient to the Western world that China ends up getting involved because in the end, this will be a negotiated settlement. There is going to be no breakthrough victory, in my view, from either side. So there will be some kind of deal done, some kind of outcome, which many people will feel in the West and indeed in Ukraine is a sellout of Ukraine's troops and the brave campaign that they fought. So when the negotiated settlement happens, if China's fingers are on that, of course, there'll be alarm that China is being the world's kind of global policeman, that China is exerting its power on the world stage in a fashion that usually it would be America. But if it's a deal that looks bad for Ukraine, it may be that the Americans are quite happy for the Chinese Mm. to take the blame rather than Washington. Now on to our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading your thoughts on events in the news. Got a lot on the COVID inquiry, Liam. Adrian says it's obviously going to be a travesty and challenge nothing of the official juvenile narrative. Anyone who thinks it's humane to imprison an octogenarian so they can eke out a few more weeks of life, then make them die alone, make a new mother give birth alone, make mourners social distance and all the other horrors imposed in the name of COVID and tell me they're compassionate is an utter F-wit. Lady Hallett has already bottled it by insisting on COVID testing for those intending the inquiry. And Jim says, the COVID inquiry should be shut down immediately. Will we hear that just 5% of COVID deaths were from COVID alone? Will we hear that in Israel, zero people under 50 died of COVID alone? Will we hear that in US hospitals, they were paid for every COVID quote unquote death they reported? Will we hear about the significant reactions caused by the vaccines? Will we hear about the Cochrane Review and its conclusion that masks do nothing? No, we will not. And we will not hear a lot of other things either. Total farce. And finally, David says... Can't we write the inquiry conclusions now? (laughs) One, Boris should have locked down the country at the start of the century. Two, measures weren't stringent enough. Three, hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved. Four, it's all Boris's fault. Five, uh, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) This is from Charlie. Congratulations, Liam. Thank you, Charlie. To you and your terrific co-pilot. Well, she's not too bad. Not too on bad. what was a brilliant podcast in which you managed seamlessly to cover just about every one of my pet topics. Educating foreign students while denying homegrown talent. Tragic. 
rewarding failure by honouring self-serving incompetence such as Jacinda Ardern, stomach-churning. The arrogance of the socialist elite whose hypocrisy knows no bounds, says Charlie, as they condemn anyone who disagrees with them as being either gammon or a fascist or both, deeply insulting. And then there's the self-appointed opinion police creating hate and division in the name of tolerance while being so intolerant themselves. How do these people establish such a platform for themselves? It's mystifying. Matt Hancock cleaning cancer ward toilets forevermore. Genius. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, you both said you felt very sad at the unsurprising revelations, proving you both completely right in your pronouncements throughout COVID. But you also said you felt proud of what you'd done And boy, oh boy, you jolly well should be. You never faltered even once. I've listened to all 150 of your podcasts and they get better and better. And I can only say that the world of media will be a much lesser place should you ever decide to stop. I sincerely hope that you don't. Best from Charlie. P.S. Brendan O'Neill was superb. Brendan, of course, was last week's guest. The brilliant author of The Heretic's Manifesto and the former editor-in-chief of the website, Spiked. Before we just read this one out from Duncan, who is an Aberdeen Conservative councillor and energy analyst, Liam, let's just pause for a moment to think that in this week, they said that solar panels weren't working to generate energy because of the heat wave. It's <laughs> <laughs> unreal, unreal. Too hot for solar panels. It reminded me of sort of British Rail, or. <laughs> We've got leaves on the line and the wrong kind of snow. <laughs> Not only was it too hot for solar panels, there was no wind. So guess what was producing most of our energy? It was gas, Halligan. It was gas. But we're all going to be fine when we when we switch everything off next year. We're not all going to be Crikey. fine. So Duncan says, Dear Alison and Liam, thanks again to Planet Normal for sticking up for our oil and gas industry and the jobs and energy security it provides. You'll remember, listeners, that Liam had recently reported from Aberdeen. Duncan says, we know that accelerating the decline of North Sea oil and gas production will increase emissions due to imports, threaten jobs and threaten investment in the energy transition. The UK will need oil and gas for many decades and it makes no sense to import while shutting down our own industry. I'm hugely passionate about the energy transition. I completed a master's degree in the subject in 2022, but the energy transition remains a a huge multi-decade process with numerous obstacles to overcome. For me, it's obvious that we need to keep investing in the North Sea for energy security and the economy, whilst also embracing the energy transition and the opportunities that investment in renewable technologies can bring. The SNP and Labour have both issued policies that would block new investment in North Sea oil and gas. However, the Energy Profits Levy, EPL, is also really damaging the industry and the energy transition. The latest announcement from the government about a price floor for the EPL is a disingenuous fudge with a floor that is unlikely to ever kick in. It also creates a completely insane cliff edge. So if oil or gas averages even a cent or penny more than the floor price, it triggers 35% in additional taxes on the entire output. Politicians of all sides don't seem to understand reality and seem hell-bent on damaging our oil industry, weakening the energy transition and exposing the country to energy insecurity. Um, Just one more on that theme, Liam, which I thought was really worth quoting. We've got some fantastically knowledgeable people in these sectors. And when I tweeted about us having to fire up that coal-fired power station to deal with the fact that solar power wasn't working because it was too hot, a listener called Harridge replied, 
firing up the last coal plant, Allison, Ratcliffe Power Station, known as Ratters. West Burton A closed at the end of March and two units, five and six, remain available at the mostly biomass Dracs. In 2011, we had a fleet of 13 reliable coal and oil-fired stations, most now destroyed. Shameful. It's really important this is now breaking through into the mainstream media, something that the likes of myself and indeed Ross Clark at The Spectator have been writing about for many months and years. The notion that if you use renewable power, and I want more renewable power, because we haven't found a way to store electricity at a cost that is financially viable and in the volumes that we need, using your renewable power means you have to have gas-fired power stations on standby. Now, when you use closed cycle gas-fired power stations on standby, that means they're much, much more expensive to maintain and to keep going. So the unit cost of that standby gas, which allows the renewables to be used, is huge. And then the way our market is rigged, and it is rigged, the renewable providers get the marginal price of electricity as represented by that very expensive intermittent gas-fired generation electricity. So the renewable companies make a huge amount of money by failing to solve the very intermittency problems and storage problems that they're meant to be subsidised to be solving. It's a racket. And now that doesn't make me somebody that doesn't want more renewable energy. I do. It doesn't make me somebody who over the right period of time wants to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. I do. I just understand the complexities of it in the way that it seems almost our entire political class doesn't. But there are now some journalists who are pushing this reality backed up by a lot of industry specialists who are putting their head over the parapet. The problem with net zero isn't that we're not going to get there because we're evil and immoral. The problem with it is that our current technological envelope, if you like, It's not broad enough. We don't have the tech smarts yet to actually achieve this in a responsible and cost-effective way. But isn't it frightening, Liam? I mean, obviously, I don't know about it as much. I don't understand it as much as you and Ross Clark do. But it seems to me terrifying that our entire political class almost is signed up to something which is a fantasy. I mean, they're actually shutting down these plants that that we need uh, as backup at the very least – with a prospectus for something which may not be delivered till the end of the century. I mean, isn't isn't this the ultimate example of crazy groupthink? We've got to the point where it's verboten even to talk about these technological issues and problems and to talk about this energy transition with any degree of knowledge that goes beyond, if you want it to happen now, it means you're nice, and if you don't want it to happen to now, it means you're evil. That's where we are. Again, it's cartoon politics. And we basically need the media to understand this stuff more and to have the guts to promote the realities, to talk about the difficulties in a constructive way, rather than just keep saying, yes, we can do this, la, la, la. I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears and ignore all the realities of the problems. And on that bombshell, that is it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave the sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week. It's your turn, Alison. 
Right, I'm going to be controversial. We're going to give two mugs. Uh, one to Duncan for his fantastic email on North Sea oil and energy and to lovely Charlie for such a joyous celebration of what we hope makes Planet Normal special. Charlie and Duncan, send us an email to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with your postal address. Put the words mug and winner in the subject heading of that email. If you enjoy Planet Normal, jolly well hope you do, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Not only does it help other people to find us, it doesn't half cheer up the co-pilot. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.